Hi everyone, so happy you've joined us today at Grace. Maybe you've been at Grace for a long time or maybe you're returning from the Warner. Uh, you're just trying to get off on the right foot spiritually in 2023 or maybe you're joining from online or on TV. Wherever you are today, uh, I believe that God is gonna honor your effort to be here and he's gonna meet you in this place. This series that we're launching today is, is based on a vibe that I've picked up recently with just about everyone I talk to. That there seems to be a sense that our world is going downhill. Like our moral fabric is unraveling. People of different religions, people of different political parties, different cultures even, they all have a sense that the world seems to be getting worse. And so what are we to do when it feels like the world all around us has lost its way? People seem angrier and more abrasive. The economy's going downhill. Different races can't seem to get along. There's generational strife. Young people this and old people that. Th things that were once considered shameful just a generation ago are being celebrated for all to see. That There's this widespread disagreement over uh, critical issues in our culture. So what do we do in the face of all this? Do we riot in the streets? Do we post angry social media rants? Do we put our head in the sand and just try to ignore uh, all that's going on and, and just live in oblivion? into it. Well, I think we can find some answers, uh, maybe even a model, in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. Daniel and his three friends are going to set an example for us of courage and of confidence and hope in the midst of one of the most famously godless societies in history. Now, I just need to catch you up with a little history so that this makes sense. Israel was the people of God. There had been a series of kings in Israel who didn't go very well. They displeased God. And so God sent in prophets to try to turn them around. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah, Habakkuk. You've probably heard of them before, but it didn't work. And so God's judgment was coming. And at that time, the greatest world power was Babylon, led by the ruthless king, Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar was returning from driving the Egyptians back to Africa, which you can see on the bottom left of this map, he went through Judah and he conquered the Israelites, and then he marched those people in captivity back to Babylon, which is on the right side of the map. And Daniel, he was 14 or 15 years old when this happened, when he was snatched from his home by an invading army and taken into captivity to Babylon. And, and young, healthy men were the prize of raids like this. And so Daniel would go on to live out his whole adult life in captivity in Babylon. He would never again see his hometown. And this part of the story is pertinent to us because the Bible also suggests that we too are exiles. That this world is not our home, that we're just passing through. First Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so when you and I look around and we have this feeling like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, like when things in the news don't settle well in your soul or something happens at your job or, or, or in your school, when it seems like our collective moral compass is deteriorating. Part of the reason is, is because we're in exile. This world isn't our ultimate home. We won't experience the kingdom of God fully until we get to heaven. 
And listen, if you think our society is bad, Babylon was worse. When it comes to evil, Babylon has no equal in all of history. In fact, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it says that immediately before Jesus' return, a mighty angel is going to come down from heaven crying out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And that phrase is to describe the universal evil through history. And to do that, the angel is going to refer to this culture, Babylon. It's the worst of the worst. Nothing will ever reach the depths of its depravity. Not Al-Qaeda, not drug cartels, not the Tower of Babel, not Sodom, not Gomorrah, not Nazi Germany. Babylon is the leading example of evil in all of history. And that's where Daniel finds himself in captivity, right in the center of the most godless society in all of history. And he's trying to live his life for God. So, so I think we can learn from Daniel. I think we can learn from his responses to wicked leaders, right? Half of you, you know, think the leader that we have now is wicked. The other half think that the last leader was wicked. Daniel shows us how to respond and, and to wayward co-workers and to examples of evil in our culture. And it's really surprising as you read through this because in many cases, Daniel's responses were the exact opposite of what we've come to expect from so-called committed Christians, which is why I think this series is going to be a wake-up call for many of us. Some of you are in a kind of personal Babylon right now. Like you feel the pressure of our culture. You feel the pressure to compromise your convictions. I think of particularly of our young people. Like there's so much pressure to compromise, so much pressure just to, to float along on the tides of our culture to wherever they may take you. Many young people are walking away from God because the pressure is so great. I want to remind you that Daniel was a teenager and the pressure that he felt, it actually made him stronger. It cemented his relationship with God. He wasn't swept up by the values of culture. He strategically chose where to take his stand. So young and old today, I think we have so much to learn. So here's my big idea. It's to choose your kingdom in order to choose your battles. Choose your kingdom in order to choose your battles. And we will see through this chapter that the culture will try to change you. you you'll, you'll kind of be at war against it. It'll try to break you down. And we will see how Daniel handles the temptations that go along with that. And so I want us to look at Daniel chapter 1. And uh, you can find your Bible or your device, Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now listen, don't miss this. There's a lot of heartbreak embedded in this little verse. Remember, God made a promise a long time ago to Abraham. He said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm going to give you a promised land and I'll make you a new community that will bless the whole world. And that promise had sustained the people of Israel for century after century. That's all they had. That's all they'd hoped for. Now they were finally in that promised land, but the people had become unfaithful and they disobeyed God and the nation was falling apart and it was divided. And now Babylon comes rolling into town, having just lifted up a heavyweight belt, world champions, just off their overwhelming victory in Egypt. And they were now picking up the spoils from the smaller nations on their way back home. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, a king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Asphenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So listen, there, there are a couple of things here uh, that, that advancing armies do to establish their control. So, so they take a couple of things that are of utmost importance to a nation. The first thing that you see here in verse 2 
It says that they took some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, these vessels are important. These were the sacred articles. These were like the lampstands and the altars and the menorahs, even the Ark of the Covenant. What the Babylonians are doing, they're saying here, Babylonians, they're saying, hey, Israel, we've heard the stories about your so-called God, and now we're taking all the stuff that, that was intended for you to worship him and your little holy of holies there. We're taking it back to our pagan city to put it on display in our satanic temples. And so, so the ne next time you go to your little temple to pray and you see all the stuff missing, it's going to be a reminder to you that your God just got his butt kicked. Your God didn't protect you. In fact, your God probably isn't even real. Then in verse 3, we find out the second thing that they took. Not only did Nebuchadnezzar take all the sacred articles, he also took the best people back to Babylon with him. In fact, over in 2 Kings, we discover that the number of people that he took is about 10,000. And notice it says here that, that he took 10,000 of the best. But, but the first four words of verse 2 are very, very important. I want you to take note of them. Did you catch it? It says, and the Lord gave so, so even though all of this that was happening was horrible, we're supposed to take note that God was allowing it, that God was overseeing it, that God is sovereign over all of this. And as we read through this book of Daniel, we need to keep coming back to those four words. No matter how out of control it feels, God is still right in the middle of all of it. And some of you need to come back to those four words, to that truth as well. God hasn't abandoned you. God is not distant. God is sovereign. So back, back to the text. They're, they're back in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, after arriving home, he's admiring the spoils of his work and he tells his advisors to bring him the, the youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and, and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. And Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Listen, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For, wh for, for why should he see that you were in worse conditions than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, eat what's in front of you. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat or water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and he gave them vegetables. As for these four youth, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. 
And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of Cyrus. Now, that's a lot. But what I want you to see is that there, there are four temptations, I think, in a godless society. And we're ultimately going to see how Daniel responded to them. But the first temptation, I'm just going to run through them here. The first temptation comes with a new place. And that temptation is isolation. Like it was a different culture, it was a different language, different people than he had ever known. Daniel was probably made to be a eunuch, which means his reproductive organs were removed. This was a proactive move by an evil king with any young man who may be in proximity to his queen, which meant that Daniel would also never know the love and companionship of a spouse. In fact, there's never any family referred to in connection to Daniel over the next 70 years of his life. And so isolation was a huge temptation in captivity. Then there was the temptation of new knowledge. This is, let's call it indoctrination. Like, did you hear that? There, there was a three-year education program. It's like uh, the, the communists used to always call their brainwashing re-education. So Babylonian re-education included occult practices and astrology. It certainly would have involved learning the dark magic of their so-called wizards and wise men. And so, you know, parents in America, d- deep breaths for you. You may be angry at times at what they're teaching your kids in school, but it's never yet been step-by-step training in the demonic occult, you know, as far as I know. So so then there was the temptation that came with new names. And this was a a, a temptation of identity. In verse 7, you saw that their names were changed. Like this was a key step in erasing their identities as children of Yahweh and giving them new identities. And so Daniel decided that they could call him whatever they wanted. Like he knew it wouldn't change who he was and, and to whom he belonged. Notice Daniel went along with all of this, but here's where he drew his line publicly. It was at the temptation of a new diet, which he deemed to be compromise. So, so many of the other changes were uncomfortable, but this was the one thing that Daniel knew was absolutely against the laws of God. It was his diet. This is where he takes his stand. But he also counteracts the other temptations in other ways. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time today. In light of these, I want to go one by one through these temptations and talk about four choices of spiritual resolve. So the first is to resist the temptation toward isolation with community. So so Daniel knew that living as a stranger in a strange land and in a new place, he needed all the support that he could get. So he formed one of the first life groups in history, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They they would go to school together. They would study together. They would pray together. They'd face opposition together, as we'll find out. They would one day face a furnace together. They would help rule together. Like this one little group of devoted believers would change the course of a whole nation. And listen, you can't handle the pressures of Babylon on your own. You will never survive and thrive in a godless culture without Christian community. At the end of verse 19, it says, Therefore, they stood before the king. Daniel wasn't alone in his stand. His crew was standing with him. So church, let me just say this. Would you surround yourself with faith-filled people? Would you surround yourself with people who share a love for Jesus and a love for his word and a commitment to follow him with full force? 
This is different than, than surrounding yourself with a social media echo chamber who, who everybody just parrots the same talking points that you do in response to every problem until everyone's brainwashed. No, Christian community is a living, breathing representation of the body of Christ on earth. We need each other. And there have been so many studies on this now, but isolation kills us. Like when you try to do life alone without some Christian confidants, when, when you're like, no, 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 I'm too busy for relationships right now, or I'm too busy for friendships right now, or I'm too busy to be in a life group right now, or to have coffee once a week with a trusted friend. Like there's just so much data on this. People who are isolated are 10 times more likely to be depressed. They're more likely to have anxiety and loneliness and, and low self-esteem and substance abuse problems and difficulties with eating and sleeping. People who are isolated are also more likely to get physically sick and to stay sick longer. But isolation also affects us spiritually. Like when you live in spiritual isolation, you're far more likely to give in to temptation. You will fall more easily into discouragement. You're more likely to be self-absorbed. You're more likely to spend money and time in dumb ways. You're more likely to, to live in self-deception, to not know the truth about yourself. Because nobody's close enough to know you and to actually talk to you about these things. And as a result, you won't live the life you were created to live because you're rejecting God's design for how your life was created to work best, together, connected in gospel-centered, life-giving community with other people. And you cannot flourish in a godless society without this kind of togetherness. I don't care how well the other areas of your life are going. Like, I don't care if you're successful at your job or, they, or if you're financially wealthy, if you're brilliant intellectually. You won't truly sense that your life is flourishing without relational togetherness with other believers. God created us for it. Remember, we're exiles in a strange land. And if we're going to stand strong, we need to stand together. You know, next week, uh, January 15th, our, our newest round of life groups is going to kick off at Grace. These are groups, nearly 100 of them, that meet in homes all over our area. And we're just convinced here that so much of the spiritual life is worked out better in circles rather than rows. And so you can head on over to whoisgrace.com slash lifegroups if you want an easy place to start. Or, or click the next button at the bottom of the, the homepage on our app. But resist isolation with community. It's what allowed Daniel and his three friends not only to survive, but to thrive, even in a toxic culture. The second choice of spiritual resolve is this. It's to undermine cultural indoctrination with God's truth. You know, Daniel was able to withstand Babylon's, uh, let's call it project assimilation, uh, because of his knowledge of God and his knowledge of God's truth, specifically God's sovereignty. Daniel was caught up in exile because of God's judgment over sins that weren't even his. It was unfair. But Daniel was aware that his life was within the scope of God's sovereignty. Daniel knew that even in Babylon, God is in control of who's in control. You know, in the first couple sentences of the book, we said that he establishes who's in control. God is sovereign. He's never wringing his hands. The New Testament version of this is over in Romans 13 where it says, For there is no authority... No government authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And so Daniel was able to go through Babylon's education program without allowing his mind and his heart to be swayed into a godless lifestyle. I think about how important it is for, for our students, particularly, to know and understand the truth of God's word before heading off to college where they're going to be exposed to all kinds of ideas and, yes, even cultural indoctrinations. The same is true for every adult. Like, guys... 
We are under the constant barrage of cultural indoctrination. Every show, every movie that you watch, every headline on your newsfeed, every song that you listen to, every TikTok video that you watch has on the other side of it a content creator that has an idea that they are trying to convince you of. There's no neutral content. And so often we watch things and we listen to things on neutral, mindlessly. We just veg out, forgetting that there is discernment required for everything that goes through our eyes, through our ears, and into our minds. Just look at how quickly our society has changed its collective view on issues, for, for example, of sexuality or a definition of marriage or whatever it is. So some call it moral progress. Others call it moral decline. But the reality is that we are under a barrage of narratives at all times. And the answer from Daniel's example is maintaining a constant awareness of God's truth. The classic example that I've used before is the way that agents are trained for spotting counterfeit money. Like they don't learn to, to spot counterfeit dollars by studying all the potential counterfeits. Instead, they study genuine dollar bills until they master the recognition of the real thing. And so that when they see bogus money, they recognize it because it doesn't look like the original. See, after studying genuine bills and becoming ultimately acquainted with every bit of their authenticity, counterfeits become much easier to spot. In fact, I did a little study this week. There's a four-step process when looking for counterfeits. It's, it, it, it goes touch, tilt, look at, and look through. And so the first thing they do is touch. A false bill is often just going to feel off. It's going to have a different weight or it's going to have a different waxiness on the bill. And with every step, there are things to, to look for that, that are true of the original. And so if you tilt the bill, you'll see certain colors or refractions. When you look at it, there are certain things or markings that are hard to fake that you should be looking for. Finally, when you hold it up, look through it. Uh, and, and, and look into the light. You know, the original has features that are hard to reproduce on counterfeits. My point is this, we, we should have a similar approach to the authenticity of our faith. Like, as we know God better, the real thing, and his word better, the authentic thing, and the more intimately we know those things that we can touch and tilt and look at and look through the various ideas and indoctrinations that are coming at us through our, our culture and compare them to the ways and the words of God and the testimony of his Holy Spirit inside us. And when something feels off, like you use discernment. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to rant or rage about it. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to protest it or cancel it or tweet about it. You just don't let it change you because you know it's a fake. You know it's a fraud. Daniel went through the whole three-year training, the re-education, and he filed it away for future knowledge, but he understood that it did, if it didn't jive with God's truth, he didn't internalize it. A part of this, this whole thing is just good old-fashioned monitoring of your intake levels. Have you thought about this recently? Like how much is your mind being exposed to information from our culture and then compare that to how much information your mind is being exposed to taking in from God's word or trusted spiritual sources? Because if that inflow is out of whack, it's only a matter of time until your behavior is gonna get out of whack to match it. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about what is beginning at the Grace Leadership Institute. Like, I think that, that biblical knowledge, the biblical literacy level of most Christians, including some of us in Grace Church, is severely lacking. 
And, and so as we bring in courses by amazing world-class professors, like the one co- coming up called The Theology of Forgiveness, this spring we're, we're bringing in uh, somebody to teach the story of the Old Testament. Like, when we bring these in, please educate yourself. Please steep yourself in, in the, the careful study of the Word of God, both in your daily chair time and through opportunities like these great ones that I just mentioned. It's going to help you to live with confidence in a godless society. And just a quick aside to parents, by the way. I would just ask, what truth are your kids hearing every day? Like, regardless of what school they attend or how how often they come to Grace Kids or whatever, you need to be speaking truth to your kids. You need to be telling them stories of faith, praying with them, because their spiritual discernment is not yet developed, and they need to receive it from you as you communicate it with them. So... The first two choices, resist isolation with community, undermine cultural indoctrination with God's truth. Here's the third choice of spiritual resolve. It's to supplant secondary identities with who you are in Christ. Like, we have this need to feel like we're part of a a group, a tribe. Like, there's something comforting about being able to say, like, these are my people. And today, this tribalism extends beyond race, beyond upbringing, to, like, political parties and sexual identity. And there are so many little niches these days that become our tribes. And it leads to a lot of virtue signaling that we see these days. It's, it's all an attempt to fit in with my group, to show that I belong with my group, because my identity is attached to them. But when one is defined primarily by a people group like this, everyone who's not in that group can be seen as an other, as an outsider, and in many cases these days, seen as the enemy. And so if you're defined primarily by your progressive political views, Those who don't share those views, like every one of them, are the enemy. Or if you're defined primarily as a patriot, like America overall, people who don't share that passion, are they don't just disagree, they're the enemy. And if you're defined primarily by your sexual identity, like people who aren't 100% allies, are enemies. Identity has become this like big buzzword of our time. It's become sacred. And so you define your identity, and if anyone messes with it, if anyone doesn't agree with it, man, it's war. Now, in Daniel's case, names were a big deal. Like to the Hebrew people, names carried significant spiritual meaning. You'll see God changing names and Jesus changing names. There was so much meaning attached to them. So, for example, Daniel means God is my judge. And his new name given to him by Nebuchadnezzar means, it was Belteshazzar, means Baal's prince. And so Daniel's name goes from child of God to son of Satan overnight. The other three names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're all named after pagan gods. And it is wild to me as I read this story that Daniel and the boys didn't get riled up by this. They They were just like, yeah, you can call us whatever. Call us anything you want. We already know that we're children of God. Let me just challenge you to to maybe take a similar approach. Like when you become a Christian, all of those identities that maybe you clung tightly to, you took pride in, they all begin to fall away because your identity in Christ is the thing that defines you. It supersedes anything and everything else that may have defined you before. Paul addressed some of these these, uh, uh, ancient identity issues when he said it this way in Galatians 3.28. He said, there's no longer Jew nor Greek No longer slave nor free, no longer even male or female. He wasn't saying that people stopped being those things. He was saying that now our identity in Christ becomes weightier 
than any of those distinctions of gender or culture or socioeconomic status that this world would assign to us. It's a kingdom mindset. It's a kingdom decision. And as members of his ultimate kingdom, all the distinctions of our littler, more insignificant kingdoms tend to melt away uh, in comparison. So supplant secondary identities with who you are in Christ. And here's the fourth choice. It's to wisely resist compromise and take a stand. Like after they integrated into their new place, after they graduated at the top of their black magic classes, after they accepted their new satanic names without much of a fight, Daniel finally took his stand. He acted on his convictions with resolve when it came to blatantly breaking God's law. And it's interesting to read the text because from verse 8 on, the initiative in the story shifts. It's hard to pick it up in most translations, but the same verb is actually used repeatedly a few times. And so, so a, a kind of literal rendering of verse 7 would be that the chief of staff determined new names for them. He determined on Belteshazzar for Daniel and, and, and so on. And then in verse 8, it would read like this. But Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food. It's the same verb. It's repeated over and over again. But this time, it's Daniel who's doing the determining. This time, Daniel, the captive, Daniel, the prisoner, Daniel is the one making the decisions. And the writer uses a really strong word for the kind of the quality of the decision he's making. It could be translated like this. Daniel resolved in his heart that he would honor God and he would not defile himself. He just decides. He says, listen, we may be in your kingdom, but we're not going to be part of it in that way. This was a difficult decision. In fact, the eunuch reminds everyone how difficult it was. He, he's saying, this king that we serve is a bloodthirsty king. He's saying, this decision by you may actually cause my head to get cut off. Like we've heard of leaders with hands-on management style or hands-off management style. Nebuchadnezzar had a heads-off management style. Like if you didn't obey, he would cut your head off. And Daniel very wisely and prudently and politely just goes to the guy one step lower on the food chain and he proposes a little test. He says, the king's food is going to cause me to disobey God. And so goes to the dean of the school to talk about the menu. And he explains that he's on a juicing plan. Kale and beets and all that crap. Vegetables only. Daniel does not view himself as the helpless pawn of circumstances beyond his control. But he didn't die on every hill either. Daniel resolved to act with magnificent courage and initiative. And yes, listen, please, humility. He responded graciously to every person he encountered. He took his stand, but with tremendous respect. Daniel was not a guy with a chip on his shoulder. He was not an agitator. He was not a watchdog for Jesus. He earned favor in his culture, not with his lewdness, but with his respectfulness. This is a pattern throughout the whole book. In fact, even in the New Testament, Paul picks up on this and he says in Colossians 4, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, tasty, interesting, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Guys, we will never have an impact on a world that thinks we hate them. And so if you have a family member who opposes you and hates your beliefs, you're never going to have an impact with them if you're constantly rude and in their face. Humility is what allows us to build relational influence. And can I just remind us that we don't need to fight every single battle? 
We don't have to join every cultural protest. We don't have to become warriors for every cause. We don't have to rant on every post we disagree with. Because when you're anti-everything, eventually everybody tunes you out. So when it came to blatantly breaking God's law, Daniel acted with spiritual resolve. And he sent word to the king. We may be in your kingdom, but we're not of it. Our allegiance lies with a greater king. And and as we will see in the coming weeks, Daniel's obedience always led to God's blessing. So let me just remind you today that this kind of resolve doesn't happen through willpower. We have the greatest resource ever. We have the Holy Spirit, Christians. Hebrews says that we need boldness, when we need boldness, when we need courage. That, That our job is to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. He too walked through this toxic world. He obeyed and fulfilled God's plan. He didn't fight every battle, just the most important one. And he fought that one so that you and I could stand firm in his strength with his help. So I ask you, Where do you need to make a choice of spiritual resolve? Where are you tempted to compromise? Where do you need to purpose in your heart to obey God? What's that area that you're struggling with or that decision that you're pondering or that temptation that you're considering where you just need to resolve in your heart to obey God like Daniel did? You don't have to take every stand, but you do need to take some. Where do you need to say being a Christian is not just something I do on the weekends? but I'm allowing God to change me every single day. And today, I'm resolving to obey him in my sexuality, choosing to obey him with my finances. I'm choosing to obey him in my relationships. I resolve to bring this area under the lordship, not of the kings of this world, not of the kings of this culture, but under the lordship of the one true king, my king. He is the one who is sovereign over all. And today is the day that I take my stand. So as we wrap up, would you just pick one of these points where you're weak and will you pray for God's help just to do the next right thing? So maybe ask, where have I become isolated? Or ask, where have I become indoctrinated by our culture? Maybe ask, where has my identity gotten wrapped up in something other than child of God? Or maybe where have my values become compromised? Where do you need spiritual resolve? Take the next right step. Love you guys.